Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 14. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That song reflects the reality that if we're standing upon anything other than the finished work of Christ, we are standing upon sinking sand. The idea is very biblical, reflected in Jesus Christ's own words, that if you're not coming through Him, through Him alone, then you are indeed on sand uh, instead of on a, a solid foundation. It will not sustain you. It will not bring you to eternal life. It will not bring you into a right relationship with God if you do not go through Christ alone. We'll actually be talking about that uh, very in-depth next week as we step into 1 Corinthians 15 and speak on uh, the Gospel as it's presented in those first few verses. But today we need to finish 1 Corinthians 14. Um, it's not 1 Corinthians 14, 125, as it might say up there on the, it sure does, on the um, projector. It is 1 Corinthians 14, and we will begin in um, verse 26, and we'll go through verse 40. So, uh, it should say 26 through 40 there, not 125 through blank. I apologize for that. Today, we're going to finish up thoughts on the spiritual gifts. Beginning in 1 Corinthians 11, if you recall, it was some time ago, Paul turned his focus away from concepts surrounding our liberties in Christ, which had been our focus really since 1 Corinthians chapter 2, our liberties in Christ, and he turned his focus upon principles and precepts surrounding the corporate assembly, what we do when we meet for church. That is the context of chapter 11, 12, 13, 14. That it's, it's about church. It's about the corporate assembly. It's about what we do when we meet together and how we should function. And he began in chapter 11, you recall, by, by heavy rebuke. When we partake in the Lord's table, the first Sunday of every month, we alternate morning service and evening service. And when we partake in the Lord's table, uh, we often turn to 1 Corinthians 11 because Paul's instruction there is so clear. But the reason why his instruction is so clear is because he's actually rebuking the church and telling them you're doing it wrong, you need to start doing it right. They were taking, partaking of the Lord's Supper in a very selfish, in, a, in a, a quite frankly wicked way. They were being gluttonous, they were getting drunk, they were withholding the Lord's Supper from anyone who was so poor they couldn't bring their own food. It was surrounding their selfishness as opposed to being focused upon what it ought to be, which is fellowship with the Lord and a memorial and identifying with the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So they were doing it wrong and Paul rebukes them for it. And that was the beginning of this lesson on the assembly. And then as we step into chapter 12, Paul began focusing upon the spiritual gifts and how they're supposed to be used in the assembly. Again, the Corinthians were doing it wrong. They were focusing on the sign gifts above the edifying gifts. They were, they were saying certain gifts were more important than other gifts. Uh, they were using their, the gift that they had been given as a mark of spirituality as opposed to simply seeing themselves as a member of the body and recognizing that every member is needed in some way, shape, or form. We talked about that. And so they were doing it wrong. And Paul corrects them on those ideas. And you recall... As Paul has talked about these gifts, he gave a what and he gave a why and he gave a how with respect to these spiritual gifts. What they are. Well, a spiritual gift is a divine enablement that's given to every believer. Every believer has at least one spiritual gift. And then he talked about why. Why they're given. Spiritual gifts are given according to 1 Corinthians 12 verse 7 to profit the body of Christ, to increase its ministerial and operational capacity. So these gifts were given for the body. They're intended to be used in the body. Coming together, doing what, what God has gifted us to do so that we as a body can be what we need to be. And then he also talked about how, and this was the important thing, how the gifts were intended to be used. 1 Corinthians 13, that's the chapter on love, right? Charity chapter. A lot of you probably have it on your walls. Have a needle pointed on a pillow. Have it in your Bibles. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not its own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, 
endureth all things, that tremendous definition of what love is. We boiled it down to one concept, which is selflessness. Love is selfless. Selfish love is not love at all. And Paul is teaching this with respect to the spiritual gifts. If we come together and I'm seeking to use the gifts that I've been given to, vo- to, to elevate myself and put others down, to see myself as better than others, to operate in a way that excludes others as they were doing with the Lord's Supper, then it's all wrong. It's all wrong. So Paul used 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians um, 12 and 13 to highlight these concepts. And then as we stepped into 1 Corinthians 14, we began learning more broadly about the operation of the gifts in the church. Paul stating that the sign gifts, he specifically used the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians 14, is uh, as far as the corporate assembly is concerned, not intended to be regularly exercised among the assembly of believers. Now, for those of you that have not been here for our series, it is online if you'd like to listen to it. We do not believe that the sign gifts are still valid for this age. We've talked about that quite a bit. We do not believe that the gifts of tongues and of healings and of miracles are valid at this time in the church. Say, Pastor, why do you believe that? You'll have to go listen to those sermons. I can't rehash it today. However, um, what Paul is emphasizing in 1 Corinthians 14 is the superiority of gifts of edification in the assembly above the sign gifts. So particularly, he says, preaching is far more important than a person getting up and speaking in tongues in the assembly. It's much more needful because prophecy has the capacity to edify the assembly, whereas tongues does not. So our conclusion over the past two weeks in 1 Corinthians 14 has been that we, when we assemble, should be focusing our time and our efforts on that which edifies the church. Our songs ought to build one another up in the faith. Our peripheral exercises, the memory work and the scripture reading, are there to build us up in our faith. If it's not unto edification, then it really doesn't belong. What we mean is this. Church is not about showing yourself spiritual, but about becoming more spiritual. Church is not about entertainment, but about edification. That's what Paul has been teaching. From the pastor down to the child, our purpose in being here is to grow in our understanding of God's Word and determine as a group to carry out God's Word in obedience. That's what we're here to do. Church is not about entertainment. The songs we sing are not inherently intended to entertain not inherently intended to give you warm fuzzies. Now, if they do entertain, if they do give you warm fuzzies, that's wonderful, but not at the expense of strengthening your faith. Not at the expense of teaching sound doctrine. The peripheral events, as we've mentioned, the prayer, the reading of missionary letters, the memorization and such, should all point us in the same direction, which is a greater relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to become more like Him. And of course, the preaching is the same. The preaching is intended not to entertain or to tickle your ears or to make you leave with an encouraging or an emotional response, but rather to encourage a spiritual response to the end that you as God's people would grow closer to God. That's what we're here to do. That's what we ought to be here to do. And that's what every church ought to be about because that's what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 14. Now, today in verses 26 through 40, Paul's going to complete his teaching on church operation, the teaching which he began in chapter 11. In chapter 15, he's going to take things in a little bit of a different turn. He's going to go to some serious doctrinal issues in the church as, as he begins speaking on the resurrection. However, uh, we're going to wrap up today final thoughts on gifts in the church and on church operation as a whole. And what we're going to see first of all as we walk through this passage, beginning in verse 26, is that gifts are intended to edify the body. The gifts as they are given are intended to edify the body. Look with me in verse 26. 
Paul asks, he says, How is it then, brethren, when ye come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation? He says, Let all things be done unto edifying. That word literally meaning to build up. Whereas Paul's focus had previously been on the superiority of edification to signs, now Paul needs to address the selfish nature in which the church was operating. Now we're still dealing with the necessity of corporate edification, but whereas Paul had been using tongues and prophecy as direct examples of this fact, Paul now broadens his view to every operation within the context of the church. He talks about uh, psalms and doctrines and tongues and revelations and interpretations. So whatever they do when they're meeting together, Paul says, let it be done unto edifying. And Paul literally asks here, what's going on? How is it then, brethren? What's going on here? The indication is that within the assembly, there was a time where a believer could share whatever the Lord had laid upon their hearts. Sometimes we do this. We have a testimony time. What, the, what has the Lord been teaching you? Um, we, on Tuesday nights in Sunday school, we're a lot more interactive and uh, a lot more back and forth. And there's times there where, where you get to take what you have learned on a topic and raise your hand and, and uh, we'll recognize you and you can add to the, to the teaching, add to the understanding, add to what we are all learning. And so this was happening in the Corinthian church. It's a very appropriate thing in church. But Paul says, how is it that everybody has something when you come together? It should have been uh, an activity, as everyone shares, of tremendous blessing in the church, but it had become more of a pseudo-spiritual exercise, we might say. It seems as though everyone felt like they had to contribute something. Or they would seem less spiritual, so everyone kind of scraped the bottom of the barrel to think of something to share, so that they could just share. And it really wasn't being a time of edification, it was being more of a time of who can be the most spiritual, who can show themselves most spiritual, who can give the longest prayer, who can say things the most eloquently, who can sound the best. The children in this room may never exactly have experienced this, but probably many, if not most, of the adults have been in a situation where someone always had something to add to the conversation, even if what they added really didn't help any. Maybe this was in school or it's at a work meeting or even in a church where there would be an opportunity to speak, an opportunity to ask a question, and everybody knew two things. When uh, This used to happen when I was in um, lectures all the time at school. There was one kid, and you just prayed that whoever was lecturing didn't say, are there any questions, right? Because you knew this kid's hand would be up right away, and you knew that whatever he was going to ask, it was either already answered in the lecture, and he wasn't listening, because he was so busy trying to think of questions that he wasn't listening to what was said, or whatever he was going to say, it was just irrelevant. It was absolutely irrelevant. But he was going to have a question, that guy was going to add his two cents. He was going to make his question. And then most likely, whatever it was, would be useless and meaningless. This was kind of the idea. Everyone was coming together and everyone had to have something because that's just what we do. You better have something to share, something to add, some way to show yourself spiritual because that's just what we do. Paul said, why? Why? Why are you doing it if it's not edifying? If it's not building up? If it's not helping people get closer to God then why are you doing it? Everyone came with something to say and it was just plain unnecessary. Verse 27, he says, If a man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two or at most by three and that by course and let one interpret. So Paul says, just let's think about this in an orderly fashion here. He's already stated its purpose, the purpose of tongues. Purpose of tongues was for unbelieving Jews as a sign. We talked about that. He says, however, if tongues is going to be used in the assembly, only have a few people do it, one at a time, and make sure there's an interpreter so that the body can be edified. And that is the point here. Edification. There may be times when you attend church and you don't necessarily learn something new about the Bible or you aren't particularly convicted of something, but if you attend a church where things are not done, 
directed towards edification, where things are done but aren't intended to build you up, then you have a problem. Do you see the difference? You can come to church sometimes and leave and just, I don't know, maybe you were really tired that day or maybe the message just was directed at something that you've, you've, you've got under control. It was a good reminder, but you know, you're not going to leave with a huge nugget for the week or, or maybe like right now in our evening services, I've got a very teaching-oriented idea as we talk about end times events and there's not going to be as much to, to grab hold of for the week, but, but you, you still learn something. You're not maybe always going to leave feeling super uplifted or edified or whatever the case may be, but the church is trying to edify. As opposed to a church where the point isn't edification, the point is entertainment, or the point is drawing people in so that they can get their offerings, so that they can get their buildings, so that they can have their business, or whatever the case may be. This is the distinction here. And Paul says in verse 28, but if there be no interpreter, and this, this is where he really highlights the need for edification. He says, uh, if there be no interpreter when these folks are speaking in tongues, let him keep silence in the church. Let him speak to himself and to God. So within this same reasoning, if a person has no capacity to edify, then he needs to be quiet. He can speak to himself, he can speak to God, but he doesn't need to contribute if he's not going to edify the body. Just like you, you can go up to that, that well-meaning kid and you can say, hey bud, I know that you like to ask questions and it's good, but if, if it's not going to help anybody, if it's already been answered or if it's kind of meaningless or useless, you really don't need to ask the question. Just keep it to yourself or go up and ask him afterwards but you don't need to take all of our time. Let's, let's, let's make this time profitable. It's kind of that same idea. Verse 29. Paul says, Let prophets speak two or three and let the others judge. So he says, As far as speaking in tongues is concerned, let two or three speak one right after another and let there be an interpreter. And then, uh, based upon what the interpreter says or as a person gets up to preach, let that man preach two or three people if, if, if need be or if you want, and then everyone else should be judging. That word literally means to separate or to discern. You take what is said and you separate it. You parse it. You listen to it and you judge it against the Word of God. And if what they are saying is accurate to the Word of God, well, then you take it. It's beneficial. You're edified. If what he is saying is contrary to the Word of God, well, then we've got a problem and we'll address that here in just a little bit. And this um, qualification, as far as the prophets are concerned, or preaching is concerned, that, that word prophet meaning forth tell, the prophetic ministry was broken into two parts, to forth tell, which is to declare the revealed word of God, and then to foretell, to declare the future. The, the declaring future part was a very minimal part of a prophet's ministry. The, the, the major part of it was simply to take the Word of God that was already delivered and to give it to the people. That's the context in which Paul is speaking here, that when a person is prophesying, he's not telling the future, he's simply declaring the revealed Word of God. And so in verses 29 through 32, Paul states that the same requirement is placed upon the preacher that would be placed on anyone else, accurately expounding the Word of God unto edification. So one at a time, men get up in the church and reflect to the rest of the people what God has shown them. And the rest listen with a discerning ear and they seek to learn and be edified. Verse 30, Paul says, If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let, him for, let the first hold his peace. For ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be comforted. So, one man speaking and, and, and someone else now has something to say, well, you need to take turns. That's not really how we do it anymore. It, it, on, on, in certain contexts, Bible studies and such, yeah, everyone gives their part. As far as the regular assembly, we have a man that gets up and preaches, and if somebody were just to kind of pop up and say, okay, it's my turn, well, that would be a little bit awkward. Um, in, in today's context, as far as how churches tend to be 
organized, but this is how the Corinthian church did it. Maybe more like what we would call a, a, a midweek Bible study type idea. And of course, typically they, they met uh, regularly, more regularly than we do um, oftentimes. But the concept, as, as Paul is giving it here, is okay, if anything's revealed to another that's sitting there, if, if, if he has something to add, well, when, when the one man's finished, then he needs to sit down and hold his peace and let the next person speak. And we all speak in turn. Make an atmosphere ideally suited to learning and to spiritual growth. And in doing so, Paul says in verse 31, you may all prophesy one by one, all may learn and all may be comforted. We all have a better chance of learning and growing as we, in an orderly fashion, engage in our assembly time. The corporate assembly is not meant to be a free-for-all. It needs structure if it's to accomplish its purpose. And this is the potential danger of some ways that church is done, whether it's a house church idea, which some are very good, some are not, or whether it's uh, uh, some of the new emergent styles. Oftentimes there is a lack of structure organization and order that hinders the ability to edify one another. And edification is very important. It is the essential aspect of coming together. So the gifts are intended to edify the body. Paul says in verse 32, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Now, what Paul means by this is he says, okay, so, so you're going to have these people speak in tongues. And we're going to have somebody interpret. If there's no interpreter, they need to be quiet. And you're going to have people that preach and they're going to share what the Lord has been showing them from the Word of God. However, he says, remember that the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, remember that whatever comes out of your pastor's mouth is subject to what has already been revealed in the Word of God. That if what is coming out of your pastor's mouth is different from what the Bible is saying, then your pastor has a problem. Then your pastor is in error. When your pastor gets into this pulpit and he says, this is what the Bible says, I am placing myself under the accountability of this book. The spirit of my preaching must align with this book. If what I'm saying is not reflected in the Bible, either in word or in spirit, then what I'm saying is not appropriate for this time. That doesn't mean that there's no time. I can get up and I can start talking politics and I can maybe be right, but that's not, I, I, I better not be preaching politics when I tell you I'm preaching this book. Now, I can use this book to reflect principles that we can apply to politics, but if I'm saying, thus saith the Lord, and then I tell you who to vote for, that's a different matter altogether. Or if I say, thus saith the Lord, and then I try to reflect upon some other element that I can apply, but as I stand before you, I'm here to tell you what the Word of God has to say. I'm not here to give you my opinions or my perspectives I'm not here to tell you stories or to tell you jokes. Every once in a while, it's kind of nice to laugh. Every once in a while, it's kind of nice to hear a story. All toward a purpose, though. And that purpose, you're not here to hear my pearls of wisdom or my observations or my opinions. You're here to learn what God's Word says. And the rest of it can flow in application and understanding and conversation. But I'm subject to the prophets. I'm subject to the Word of God. I'm held accountable to saying what the Bible says. Verse 33, Paul says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. That word confusion there literally means instability or disorder. We've also, not, not only have we, we seen that, that the the body is intended to be toward edification, but we also see then, secondly, as you see the second point here, gifts are 
intended to be exercised in an orderly fashion. In an orderly fashion. And we're going to see this in verse, we see this in verse 33. We're going to see it again in verse 40. Paul said in verse 27 that those who speak in, in, speak in tongues should do it by course, one after another. He said in verse 31 that those who prophesy should do so one by one, one after another. And now he says in verse 33 that God's not the author of confusion, but of peace, that he wants things done in an orderly fashion. And he will say in verse 40, if you look at it with me, let all things be done decently and in order. In the corporate assembly, decency, order, peace should prevail. That is the spirit that we ought to have in the corporate assembly. Now, Paul is going to take things in a little bit of a different direction. Our third point, we saw that the gifts should be done to edify. We saw that the gifts should be orderly. In verse 34, down through verse um, 35, particularly these two verses, we're going to see that gifts must be exercised in submission. Gifts must be exercised in submission. Now, we've already talked about how the pastor is submissive to the Word of God. Now, Paul's going to bring up women's role in the assembly. Now, this is controversial. That's okay. A lot of the Bible's controversial. It's not a problem. I have preached a more thorough um, examination of all the passages that talk about the women's role in the assembly. Uh, if you go online and you, you, uh, you go to my, the website and you go to the sermon area and you search women's role in the assembly, you will find those sermons. It was a three-parter. But uh, today we should be able to cover it fairly thoroughly. In verse 34, Paul is highlighting this characteristic of submission. We read in verse 34 that women must reflect submission in the assembly by not participating in the teaching elements of the service. Look with me at verse 34, and we'll read verse 35 as well. Paul says, Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Now, this is controversial oftentimes because the interpretation of it is so widely um, skewed or confused. But if we're careful, we can come to a very understandable place on these verses. We find that this is the same word for silence. Let the women keep silence in the church that's used in verse 28 to characterize men who wanted to speak in tongues but had no interpreter. So they are to, to not add. It doesn't mean that they don't have anything to say, but it's that it is inappropriate for them within the context presented to speak. So women, it's not saying that you don't have something to contribute. What it is saying is that it's not the appropriate place for you to contribute in the corporate assembly. And we'll, we'll, we'll define that even more specifically. Uh, hang with me here. The idea is not that a man is not allowed to say any words in church, the man that would desire to speak in tongues, but rather that he should not participate in an authoritative way in the assembly. The man who wants to speak in tongues but has no interpreter can still talk in church. He's just not supposed to speak in tongues because the conditions aren't satisfied. In the same way, this command is not for women to completely shut their mouths when they step into the church. Can't speak, can't say hi, can't greet one another, can't fellowship. It's not saying that. It's saying that within the context of authoritative speaking, teaching, edification, that the women are not to... It's not an appropriate setting for them to contribute within the corporate assembly. Women are not to assume teaching, preaching, and leadership roles This is in the assembly. It's, it's, it's forbidden by God. Rather, women are to assume the role of submission in the assembly. That word, literally, to subordinate, to obey, being the same one used in verse 32 to describe the submission of the preacher to the Scriptures. So in the same way that your pastor gets up and he is to align himself with God's Word, women are to align themselves with God's headship model. 
which is God, Christ, man, woman. That's how God has designed it. Not because women are inferior, not because they're less capable, but because that is how God has designed it to be. The idea is that teachers and preachers in the assembly should reflect appropriate and evident submission to the word of God. Women should reflect appropriate and evident submission to the men in the church. Now, Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, this, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. There it is. It's pretty clear, isn't it? That a woman is not to have an authoritative or teaching role in the corporate assembly. It's just plain not biblical. It's just not biblical. Now, you might not have a problem with that. Many people in our circles understand that the Word of God says that women are not to teach, preach in the assembly. That settles that issue. However, verse 35, it gets even more interesting because it says, and if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Now that's interesting. What does it mean if they will learn anything? Women aren't allowed to learn. They have to wait until they get home and then ask their their husband, what was said? What, what, what does this mean? This one's a little bit more difficult. And this is one of those times where the Greek really helps. The word here, to ask, is the word eperotao, which literally, if you look at how it's used in the Bible, has an authoritative idea to it, a, a demand or an interrogation. This is the word that was used when Jesus stood before Pilate. This was the word that was used when the Christians in the book of Acts stood before the Sanhedrin and they questioned them. This is the kind of questioning when a, a policeman pulls you over and he stands in your window and he says, do you know why I pulled you over today? There's an authoritative interrogation type quality to it. There's a, 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 a demanding quality. It's not just, hey, what's the weather going to be today type question. It's a, you, you need to answer to me on this. You, you need to explain yourself to me. That is the flavor of this word. It's not a word that simply is about asking questions. It is a word that has the idea of interrogation or authoritative inquiry. So the scenario is not that as I'm teaching in Sunday school, a woman can't raise her hand and ask a question or raise a hand and answer a question. The scenario is that a woman should never in the assembly openly contradict or refute the teaching. For in doing so, she is now stepping out of her submissive role and attempting to usurp the authority from a man. We'll say, well, pastor, what if, what pastors, what, what, what if the teaching is wrong? What if the teaching is wrong? Well, then she has two options. She can either pray that some man brings it up or she can wait till she gets home, bring it up to her husband, and then he can bring it up in the assembly. This is not because women are inferior. It's because this is the headship that God has given. That women, according to the word of God, are not to usurp authority or to teach in the corporate assembly context. So if she, if, if she does demand an explanation for something that she believes was wrong, if there is a case where, where there's something that needs to be corrected, she needs to go outside of the corporate assembly and appeal to her line of authority. Husband, if it's a single woman in the church, perhaps appealing to uh, either an elder, a deacon, or to the pastor, depending upon the setup of the church, in a submissive and private way that can then be brought before the assembly through proper headship and authority. That is what Paul is saying here. Because what he's, he's... Inherently, the context of this passage is not about women. The context of this passage is how we operate within the corporate assembly. And we're to operate in submission. We're to operate unto edification. We are to operate in a manner that is orderly. And this is what Paul is saying here. When a woman usurps that role, Paul says at the end of this verse, that it's a shame. 
It shames her as it, according to her role in the church and where she ought to be, and it shames the church before God. It's a shame. It, it does not reflect well upon that church when a woman usurps authority over the men in any capacity, whether a teaching role, whether a correcting role, whether a leadership role. It is a black mark on that church. Now Paul continues here, and, and he's finished speaking of women, and, and he's broadening his context again, and he says this in verse 36, What? Came the word of God out from you, or came it unto you only? He says, did the word come from you, or did it come to you, Corinthian church? He's been correcting them for everything. I mean, all the way back to 1 Corinthians 2, Paul has been correcting this church. He had to correct them because there was a man in the church who was fornicating with his mother-in-law. He had to correct them because of the way that they were doing um, communion. He had to correct them for uh, their understanding of the, the physical intimacy between a man and a woman. He's had to correct them for the way that they were doing sign gifts. He keeps correcting them here. He had to correct them for women and their submission in the assembly. And he says, look, Corinthian church, are you the authority here? Or is God's word the authority? Did, did God's word come out from you or, or, or did you receive it? Are you the origin of all things God? Do you have the authority to dictate what's right and wrong? Or do you need to recognize that what you're doing is not in line with God's word and humble yourself before God? This is that principle that we speak of so many times. That we are not the judges of this book. We don't step into this book when we read it, when we study it, when we preach it. We don't step into this book judging it seeking to conform it to culture, seeking to conform it to our understanding. We don't wrap this book around our, our personality. We come into this book and we let this book judge us. This book tells us what is right and wrong and we wrap our lives around this book. We wrap our personality and our character and our actions around what God expects from us in this book. This is the authority and it has come to this church. Authority does not come out from this church that we dictate to everyone else. Authority comes to this church from the Word of God and we live it. And as we live it, we're a testimony. Others see it and they understand the Word of God. And that's how Paul is approaching them here. He says, did the Word come out from you or is it coming to you? Well, certainly it came to them. We don't determine what the Bible says. We find out what God's Word says and then we obey it. And the Corinthian church simply began doing what you and I do all too often. And that's we read the Bible, we don't like something it said, or we don't understand something it said, and so we try to reinterpret the Bible to make it fit what we want it to say. And it causes great problems in the church, doesn't it? when we try to fit the Bible into our understanding instead of forming our understanding out of what the Bible says. So he corrects them on this. And he says in verses 37 through 40, some final concepts here. In verses 37 and 38, he says, If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. But if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. First in verse 37, Paul says, if a man thinks himself to be a man of spiritual discernment, a man who knows the Word of God and can relay it to others, well then ask him. He will substantiate that what I'm saying is true. If he actually knows God's Word, if he knows, if he has any spiritual discernment, then he's going to tell you that what I'm saying is right. Now Paul had that confidence because he received it from the Lord himself. And Paul said, any man who doesn't agree with what he has just taught is either number one, rebellious, or number two, just plain ignorant. And he says, if a man wants to remain ignorant, stay in his ignorance, well then let him be ignorant. But you don't have to follow along. You don't have to play along with those that are ignorant. We don't have to play along with those who try to justify their sin with, by re reinterpreting and misinterpreting the Word of God. We talked about that a little bit in Sunday school this morning. We don't have to play along, folks. You don't have to play along when someone tries to justify sodomy through the Scriptures because it's not true. 
You don't have to play along when somebody tries to justify killing infants in the womb through the Scriptures. You don't have to be... You don't, you don't have to be um, intimidated, there's the word I'm looking for, by people that misinterpret the Word of God because you have it. And you have the Holy Spirit to help you understand it. And you can read in plain text. I don't have to be interpreted. or be, be, um, in, uh, <laughs> What's the word? I just intimidated. There we go. It's, it's just not, not wanting to be in my head today. I don't need to be interpreted. I, I, I think I need to find a new word. I don't need to be afraid when someone else, some other church in this area has a female pastor and hears me preach that it's wrong. I don't need to be afraid of her or of them because I can read it in the Word of God. And I'm not going to twist the Word of God to fit my culture. I'm going to fit my culture around the Word of God. And so I don't need to be afraid, and you don't either. Now, there are, there are things that we don't understand in the Scriptures, and the reason why is because we're limited. There are, there are questionable areas, areas of debate. We're going through the end times in our evening service. There's a lot of debate there. I'll give it to you. I might be wrong. I have reasons why I believe what I believe and I think I'm right and I've given those to you and I'll continue to give those to you. But you know what? There's a lot of gray area there. But the gray area is not with God, it's with me. It's because I don't understand things well enough. Or it's because God hasn't revealed everything and He's chosen to do that. And so I don't have to be intimidated because I'm just going to read what God's Word says and do my best to understand it. going to study, I'm going to learn, I'm going to pray, I'm going to seek counsel, and I'm going to obey what I know the Word of God to say. And I don't have to be afraid. We don't have to let culture silence us or shame us or bring us to a place of intimidation and fear. Because God's Word is right. And if they want to be ignorant, you know what? Let them be ignorant. If they want to say, no, that's, what not, that's not what the Bible says, well, you know what? They're going to stand before God one day. And really, that's all that matters, isn't it? When you stand before God one day, you don't need to hear your pastor say, well done, my good and faithful congregant. You don't need to hear your dad say, well done, you've conformed yourself to my faith. You don't need to hear the president say, well done, you're politically correct and you, you, you're tolerant. You don't need to hear that. What you do need to hear one day is, well done, my good and faithful servant from your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so what matters in your faith and in your life is that when you read the Word of God, that you can stand before God and say, this is right. And that's where your confidence lies. Not in men. Not in your pastor's words but in your understanding of the Word of God and that you are in a place where you're void of offense before God. And then he says in verse 39 and 40, Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy and forbid not to speak with tongues. He gave all this about how tongues is, needs to be minimized in the assembly. He says, but don't forbid it at, for that time in the church. Don't forbid it. He says, desire though, desire good preaching. He says, this is what you want in your church. You want someone who's going to edify you, who's going to build you up, who's going to strengthen you in your faith so you can go out and be strong in the midst of a culture that will hate you. So he says, look for that. And then he says in verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. We're going to apply this morning four points. It's good that we learn, but understanding without application is oftentimes empty. So we'll apply. Our point, first point this morning is that this church and all churches ought to, this church exists to edify and be edified, not to entertain, not to babysit. I, I hope that coming to church from a, from a material perspective is not necessarily something that you, you dread. Um, but at the same time, Coming to church is about growing in your understanding of the Word of God. 
This church doesn't do everything that a lot of churches do. We have traditional music. We use the King James Version of the Bible. We have reasons for all these things. We're we're not set up to draw super large crowds. But by God's grace, what we try to do, and we're constantly assessing if we're doing this well, is be a body that edifies one another. Whether it's the fellowship before and after, or whether it's what's done in the service, that's what we are here to do. And by God's grace, we will continue to do that. By God's grace, everyone from the youngest to the oldest will be edified in this assembly. And that's what we desire. And we're not loyal, inherently loyal to to a certain method or certain tradition as much as we're loyal to that which is best to the edification of the saints. Application number two. Your pastor's responsibility is to teach the Bible, not his own ideas. Now, as a, as a young pastor, I'm still learning a lot of, of where the line is drawn on this. I will grow, and, and if you have listened to my sermons for a while, you know that my, my preaching has, has evolved over time, and it will continue to, Lord willing. I think it's gotten longer. But uh, other, other ways as well. But um, for all that... Whether it's here or whether it's somewhere else, whether you're listening to a sermon online, you turn on the television and someone's preaching, would you use that second point as one of your rules, one of your guidelines for what you listen to, for who you listen to? Does he preach the Bible? I mean, does he really take the Word of God and read it and preach it and obey it? Or is he just going to take a small little sliver of one verse and run off into something that he wants to talk about for that day? Is he just up there telling a bunch of jokes? Do you leave and the only thing you can remember is that really good one-liner? Or is he actually teaching and preaching the Word of God? Now, I make no bones about the fact that there's plenty of people that do it better than your pastor. But are you listening to people that do it? Point number three. Women have no place in leadership, authority, or teaching roles in the church. Women, you're very special. The scriptures indicate that you are to be highly esteemed and honored. The desire to hold a door for a woman put a coat down so she can step over the puddle, those sorts of old-timey ideas, they're not demeaning. They're not devaluing. They're not telling you that you're incapable. It's intended to show you the respect that is due to you. The Word of God does not reflect that you are lesser citizens, that you are lesser capable. Anyone that knows my wife and I knows that women are very capable Just look at the contrast between me and my wife and you'll know that my wife is a very capable woman. She can do a lot better than I can. That's not what the Bible ever teaches. As a matter of fact, the Bible liberates women. It takes women from the object of man's lust and it elevates her to an object of particular worth and treasure. We, we do not live in a society that's trying to liberate women. You look at what happens on Sundays all around the country today with the NFL and the way cheerleaders are flaunted in their hardly any clothing. And so we'll write, a good, we'll, we'll, we'll write well about how women need to be liberated and we're not going to settle for men that beat their wives and all of this stuff. And then you see a pornography industry and an alcohol industry that is doing nothing but flaunting and abusing women. You look at the Super Bowl and the sex trafficking that, be, that is, is rooted right in the, the lack of structure and, and, and lack of accountability on any Super Bowl city. And you, you see that, that society is not built around liberating women or treating women with worth. We, we, we talk a good talk as long as it doesn't affect the bottom line and the bottom dollar. Christianity brings worth, 
God. Christianity, as it reflects God, treats women with worth, with respect. However, God also has a hierarchy in place. Headship. Jesus Christ is the head of the man. The man is the head of the woman. It's taught very clearly in Scripture. Women, if you will allow yourself to operate within the guideline, God's guidelines of headship, you will find yourself, I'll use that PC term, empowered in a way that you never could understand before. You will find the freedom to operate within that spectrum of submission and you will find a contentment and a joy that you never otherwise could have understood. If you will but operate within the realm that God... In faith. If you will take what God's Word says by faith, no, the woman will not usurp authority over the man in the corporate assembly. Yes, I will submit myself to my husband. And you need to define that properly, of course. That doesn't mean you're his... his rug to walk on. Proper biblical submission. If you will submit to that in faith, God will reward you. And you will find it to be a wonderful, beautiful place. So, women have no place in leadership authority and teaching roles in the church. Finally, and fourth, what God wants from His church is obedient submission and order. Folks, this is what God wants. When you see an assembly that is disordered, that, is, that is, is more defined by chaos than anything else, that doesn't have a proper structure put in place, there's something wrong there. Now, that doesn't mean it's a bad group of people. What it means is that they have a blind spot in a particular area. Because God's church is to be defined by obedience, submission, and order. And that being because that is the Christian life. Isn't it? Obedience, submission, and order? Should we come together in assembly and do everything opposite of what God has called us to do as individuals? Shouldn't the assembly be nothing more than an extension of our spiritual lives? So should not we operate in the assembly in the same way that we would desire our, our lives to be? God does not want us to be living lives of chaos and disorder and that, uh, lack of discipline, that, that's not what the Scriptures reflect. The Scriptures reflect that we are to be at peace, as is the assembly, as should all the churches of God, as Paul says. So, by God's grace, this church will be what God's called the church is to be. We'll stand upon it. We'll live by it. We'll change. We'll tweak. We'll do what we need to do to remain loyal to the Word of God. And may I encourage you to, discern, to determine what God's place for you would be in that assembly. God wants you somewhere serving. God wants you somewhere as a part of a church body. Does He want you here? Are you doing your part? Are you busy serving? Are you helping add to that obedience, submission, and order? May God help each one of us to determine our place in His assembly. Let's pray.